this is the podcast for our Sunday morning show. Well, the food scene has come alive in Metro Vancouver with tons of great new restaurants to try out, and we've got the lowdown on all the best eats. And Britain is dealing with selecting a new leader once again. This after their Prime Minister Liz Truss resigned. But first, what just happened with the BC NDP and what does it mean for the party? Well, the latest in the BC NDP saga for its leadership race has disqualified candidate Anjali Patarai, saying that she will stick with the NDP. Now, she was the only challenger to David Eby, who is now set to become next party leader and next premier. For more, I'm joined by longtime campaigner and former executive director of Lead Now, Sonia Thoreau. Hello, Sonia. Hello, Raji. So, Sonia, in the Cull Report, there was this uh, thorough outline of what a Paterai and Dogwood, I should mention, did that would be considered unallowable in their campaign and effort to recruit new members to the party. And then a Paterai and Dogwood said that they didn't act with poor intentions. They said that they were what, doing what they thought they were allowed to do. But they ultimately did not comply with the rules. And I think throughout all of this, people have been wondering, and I'm putting this to you because you're someone who has uh, been a financial agent, third party in elections. How familiar do you think candidates are with electoral finance rules? I think when you're new to politics, there's a steep learning curve to learn those rules. I do know that third parties like Jogwood and Lead Now have to do their due diligence in terms of reading the, the financial guides. If you really want to learn more, you go right into the act. Um, and then there's usually a lot of correspondence between campaigns or whether third party or, or, or new candidate and Elections BC. Uh, often what happens is you'll put together a scenario, send it to Elections BC and ask, am I in compliance here? Because when it comes to the, the rules that that speak to collusion, they're incredibly gray and you need that extra guidance of either a lawyer uh, in your camp or or you go straight to Elections BC and say, okay, I understand this, this and this, but this is what we're doing and it feels gray. Can you give me guidance? And I don't know for sure, but I would be very surprised if Dogwood hadn't done that. So I, I suspect they thought they were operating within the rules, noting that there is quite a gray zone that's open to interpretation. So that's really interesting. If there is a gray zone that's open to interpretation, and in fact, that checks out with what I've heard from political scientists. We had Hamish Telford on saying something very similar. If there is that gray zone and they are checking in with Election BC, would there not be a track record of that correspondence with Elections BC where Elections BC would lay out very clearly if yes, this was okay or no? I would hope so. And that really depends on whether or not they did this by phone or by email. When I've advised campaigns, I say, put it in an email, make sure you have a sure. paper trail. Yes. Uh, and that, that's coming from a place of, uh, you know, uh, knowing what happens if you have acted outside of the act. It can be very intimidating, even in small ways. So it's always on, it behooves you to be extra, extra vigilant. So I guess what I'm getting at is, is there a way that a Paterai could have not known at all that she was breaking rules? Or was she choosing to maybe act blissfully ignorant there? I I suspect that the so much of what the report was referencing was from the August 6th meeting. My impression in that meeting is it was ignorance versus collusion and Interestingly, it's unfortunate that we won't get an Elections BC investigation because I think that would have provided closure. Um, 
because Elections BC will actually weigh intent. They actually will look at whether or not you knew you were breaking rules or if this was ignorance because they've had to deal with so many people that are new to politics or they're volunteers that have stepped up abruptly and haven't done their due diligence yet to read the rules. So they would generally actually take in whether or not you were knowledgeable into their um, into their jurisprudence. And the same thing for another third party that the Elections BC would weigh their intent? Exactly. Yes. They, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't um, sanction you, but I would I would imagine that it is part of how they determine what types of sanctions to, to dole out. Was this intentional breach? First of all, was it a breach? Uh, second of all, was it intentional breach or was it done in ignorance? Now, some people have taken a more, I would say, vindictive approach and said, you know what, you want to be a leader, you want to lead the province eventually, Uh, you should have done all due diligence beforehand and there's no excuses whatsoever. How popular do you think that view is? That's a good question. I will admit I've had a hard time gauging what the general public sentiment is on this because I interact with people heavily engaged one way or the other. Sure, yeah. So it's hard to say, but I mean... The, the human mind will grasp the simplest story and, you know, someone cheated is generally the simplest story. I mean, and there's merit in the sense of you really need to do your due diligence. And from what I understand of that August 6th meeting, they were very nascent. I don't think they had necessarily established a campaign and done the due diligence at that point. So interesting. I'm going to play a clip uh, here for you just now. I maintain that from day one, our campaign strove to do things with integrity. We... Uh, we acted above board in every way. We used good old-fashioned organizing and not any kind of collusion or trickery to sign up the number of members that we did. And we were held retroactively responsible for the actions of other organizations. And that's something that I believe is unfair. And now I'm going to play you a clip from David Eby. I sent out a message to all the members of the NDP this morning, um, and, I, and I want to uh, uh, share with them uh, the mixed feelings and the sadness uh, that many people have about how this leadership race ended. And so, Sonia, what do you think is next for the NDP in terms of their challenges? Well, I think David Eby's already taken some of the correct first steps in in taking a conciliatory tone in his correspondence uh, after the event. And uh, I'm among uh, a chorus of strategists that also, you know, lean climate activists, just to be transparent, that, you know, he should be taking a look at the platform she put together and seeing what he can absorb into his vision and finding ways to work with her. And, And I think that they really need to hear the call to action, which is you need to pay attention to your grassroots. This dismissal of these new members um, as, as illegitimate and fraudulent, I think, was, a, was a, probably the greatest mistake. Because on the one hand, you have a contestant. On the other hand, you have potentially tens of thousands of new members to your party. And when they entered the race with something, I think, of the order of 11,000 members for a governing party, that's a, a horribly low number. And I think that reflects how much they have lost their grassroots in recent years, not just because of climate, but for other reasons. Yeah, it's going to be so interesting to watch all of this continue to play out. Sonia, thank you for your time today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Raji. I want to talk to you about something very serious. Are you ready? Got to take some notes here because we're talking 
food. There are 42 new restaurants opening in Metro Vancouver, some of which have just opened. And honestly, some of these sound game-changing and incredible. So here to break it down for us is the woman behind The List, National Dish Editor at Daily Hive, Hannah McLean. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Okay, first of all, Hannah, there are a lot of new spots on this list. In general, what are you kind of seeing out there in terms of trends in restaurants and cafes? Oh my gosh, there's so many. It always blows me away how many end up being on the list when we finish it off every month. Um, In terms of trends, it's just exciting to see everything sort of really coming to fruition. A lot of concepts were delayed by the pandemic over the last few years. So I feel like we're just sort of seeing an explosion of of concepts opening this summer, fall. Um, It's super exciting. And are you seeing more thematic places, concepts? Are you seeing uh, individual independent places opening or are you seeing more chains? Oh my gosh, it's always a mix, to be honest with you. You're seeing some big chains coming in and breaking into the Western Canadian market, but you're also seeing some incredible local concepts that we've never seen before, too. You're also seeing a lot of um, local expansion, local concepts that started in Vancouver or Metro Vancouver that are opening their second, third, fourth locations. That's really interesting. All right, let's talk about Archer. Where is it? What's it all about? Yeah, for sure. So Archer is one I'm really excited about. It opened sort of in late September. I actually just popped in last week. It was such a great experience. Um, It's down in Cole Harbor. It's on Alberni Street. And it's aiming to give guests sort of a culinary tour of the Pacific Northwest. But I would say the biggest highlight is it's really just a beautiful, beautiful room to sit in. uh, Really insta-worthy, great date night spot. Um, And they've got a couple sort of immersive dishes on the menu, which um, is sort of like the flaming cheesecakes and smoking oysters vibe. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm just looking at their website right now, the website for Archer. It's archerdining.com. It looks like they also serve really pretty cocktails. And yes, the decor is so gorgeous. Kind of uh, looks like a throwback to maybe the 50s even. Yeah, it's really chill in there, and your your spot on the cocktail program is excellent. So I would certainly recommend checking it out. Okay, and now for those who have not been inducted, what is Jollibee? Because I know it is a very big deal to the people who've tried it. Yes, absolutely. So Jollibee is a world-famous Filipino fast food chain, and they actually just launched their second Vancouver location on Camby Street on Broadway and Camby. Uh, super famous for their fried chicken. Um, I'm personally a massive fan of the peach mango pies. Those little hand pies are so yummy. Um, But yeah, this second floor restaurant just opened last week. Okay, why do people love it so much? I think it's a lot of nostalgia. They do a lot of uh, a lot of like family foods that people have grown up eating. Um, and it's just a great place to be the branding super happy, super jolly, um, just filling delicious accessible comfort food. Can never go wrong with that, if you ask me. I love it. And then Rewind Beer Company is getting a ton of attention. Totally. So this was a really fun one to watch. Um, And I have actually yet to pop in. I'm a bad food editor. I've got to get out there ASAP. Um, But, you know, we see a lot of breweries coming up. They've all got sort of the same vibe, Pacific Northwest, a lot of the time. This is a throwback brewery so they're inspired by retro 80s 90s 2000s vibes um and on top of that they've actually got an in-house detroit style pizza offering called high top pizza so 
kind of the best of both worlds there, pizza and, so and uh, beer. <laughs> so good. And that one's out in Port Moody, right? That's correct. That is the newest member of the of the Port Moody Brewer Row. So definitely check it out if you're in the area. Okay. I love the website. It's just like, it looks like flashing VHS glitch gone wrong. So you right away get the throwback <laughs> vibe from it. And Cafe Club. Yes, but this one is uh, is very new as well. It's super fresh. So it is the city's 100% digital order cafe. It's the first in the city. So by that, they just mean uh, everything can be done digitally if you want to. You don't have to come in. You can go in and order in person. But if you want to order a coffee, treat, and lunch ahead of time, uh, their goal is to get you super high quality food and sips. Uh, and they say their turnaround time is roughly five minutes as well their turnaround time is five minutes that's what they say yeah so this is another one i i need to check out um they've got a lot of local partners that people would probably know there's brands like moving coffee nemesis coffee and bakeries like Butterboom Bakery and To Live For Bakery as well. So you'll see a lot of familiar names um, up for order as well. Oh, that's so interesting. And then uh, brother-sister duo Betty and Jackie Hung are opening a downtown, I understand, version of Boku Bakery. That is right. This is very dangerous for me as I'm a downtown builder. <laughs> so um, but yeah, just touching on sort of what we mentioned at the top, like, we're seeing these local concepts open multiple locations in town and it's so exciting. Um, the original French inspired bakery is on first street. Uh, but this one will be opening downtown in the St. Regis hotel on Dunsmuir street. So, um, if you're a fan of them, you know, they make amazing croissants and beyond. So yeah, I'm super stoked that they'll be opening hopefully very soon here downtown. So I love a croissant and I know that Boku is known for their croissant, but every time I have gone into their original location on First Street, I have been tantalized by the other sweet treats. So I don't end up getting the croissant because how does a croissant compete with like a delicious French pastry, other like a sweet one? It just doesn't for me. So I am waiting for this one to open downtown and then I promise I will try their croissant, which I've heard is legendary. And also Hannah, people are talking about milk bar there's so much buzz behind milk bar oh my gosh yes another one that people are really excited about so um one of the sweetest names in bakeries honestly it's coming to downtown vancouver it was a new york city founded concept and it's known for its compost cookies and its naked layer cakes um cereal milk soft serve all of those yummy treats and it's actually launching on the first level of nordstrom at pacific center I think that one's going to be a really big deal. We're actually going to wrap it up there. But Hannah, thank you so much for giving us the lowdown on what to check out in Vancouver. Of course, it was my pleasure. Well, UK Prime Minister Liz Truss's resignation the other day was a shock to many, but you know what? Inevitable to others, right? You saw the memes comparing her tenure to that of a head of lettuce, which would last longer, and ultimately the lettuce, the vegetable one. So now what? For more, I'm joined by Robert Johns, a politics professor at Essex University. Hello, Robert. Hello. So good of you to join us again. Robert, no problem. Pleasure. not sure uh, if you heard our, our tape earlier, maybe you've heard, you've already heard it just from BBC there, of the Conservative MP Sir Charles Walker sounding off on, on how livid uh, he was with Truss. Did you hear that whole bit? 
Uh, yeah, I've heard him on, on that theme quite a few times. Yes. And he's still he's maintaining the anger. Yes. Now, he's so angry. He's with just the whole mess that the country finds itself in. What did Liz Truss do in her month and a half to tick everyone off the way she did? Well, um, her, the first couple of weeks of her reign, were, um, uh, reign uh, was completely overshadowed by the, the death of the Queen. Um, as soon as the dust settled after that, she had what was commonly referred to as a mini-budget, um, i.e. a set of announcements on taxes and spending that sent the markets into free fall. And from then on, she seemed doomed. And she was particularly doomed because during the leadership contest in which she'd beaten um, a rival, Rishi Sunak, there had been much debate about her plans in which he'd said, if you do this, the markets will crash and you'll have to rein it back immediately. So she was exposed as not having really listened to people as well as having made a mistake. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. And she announced those unfunded tax cuts and it was that announcement that tanked the value of the pound really quickly. How did someone with so little experience in the first place get to hold such a position? Well, she was not that inexperienced in terms of she'd been in the cabinet for a long time in a range of roles. She hadn't had a lot of senior positions until she was foreign secretary um, in the run up to her being prime minister. Um, But I think we've had a problem in the UK ever since the Brexit referendum, which is that we've had the Conservatives in government, but they were deeply split on on the European Union issue. And basically anybody who voted to remain in the EU, which was at least half of the Conservative parliamentary party, is more or less considered persona non grata in, in the cabinet. So the pool of talent is, is halved in, in size. And they've kind of tried quite a few people and they're dipping ever deeper into that pool. And because they're so deeply personally divided as well, Liz Truss was elected because she wasn't Rishi Sunak and because she was the one who was seen as having been loyal to Boris Johnson, who remains more popular than her. So it, a lot of people who voted for her will have known deep down that she probably wasn't the most talented candidate, but they went ahead anyway. And, and as you sow, so shall you reap. Just because she seemed like she was the better choice between those others? Well, she represented, I mean, everybody likes tax cuts. It's just that nobody really likes to think about how they can be funded. Sure. Um, so she was speaking, the, the way that the system works is that you you get down to the final two candidates via the MPs, but then it goes to the party members, and party members in the country tend to be to the kind of ideological outside or extreme of of the of the party as a whole. So that they they lapped it up. But again, as I say, there's a it became a very personal thing about whether you'd been loyal to Boris Johnson or not, and she was perceived as the loyalist, and, and that was a huge advantage in her favour. And now former Chancellor Rishi Sunak has confirmed he's in the race to be the next Conservative leader. And also, Reese Mogg says Boris Johnson will run. Yeah, Boris Johnson has had a dramatic return from his holiday in the Caribbean to um, <laughs> to take part in this leadership race, it seems. But at the moment, the, the, the story is that Rishi Sunak is overwhelmingly the favourite. He has a lot of backers. And I think Boris Johnson is, is in the background assessing whether he has enough backers it to make it worth publicly standing. The reason I think he's hesitated before announcing officially that he will stand is because he's not sure whether he's even got a chance of winning. And I personally suspect that he hasn't. And so I think there may well soon be some announcement along the lines of Boris thinking, actually, Rishi Sunak will be an excellent man for the job and I would be delighted to serve in his cabinet, etc., etc. 
Um, yeah. I, I, I think there's a fair bit of smart money on Sunak now. Okay. Uh, also, let's talk about Liz Truss uh, having been only in number 10 for 45 days, and yet she's apparently eligible for the public duty costs allowance, the PDCA. So this means she could get up to 100, what would be in Canada, $177,000 annually. But the Labour Party has said she shouldn't receive it. What is the status on her right to that allowance? Well, her constitutional right to it is unquestionable, really. Um, I mean, the rules are, are clear and it, it's never really come up before because nobody's done such a short time. Sure. Um, I mean, actually, with some of the, pe- the prime ministers who've served a couple of years, there have been murmurs about this kind of thing. But, I mean, it, it, it may prompt a change in the rules, but it would be a bit harsh on, um, on her. I mean, it always seems a bit odd to speak about harshness by depriving people of that kind of money for, for having done so little. But it, it would certainly seem a bit vindictive to say, right, well, you were so bad that we're going to change the rules retrospectively. Um, and, I mean, these things, are, they're not huge amounts. You know, per, no individual in Britain is going to be affected by, by this, even though it does stick in the craw a bit. Um, so I, I suspect she'll, she'll get her money. But what she won't get is credibility back in any time, I don't think. So I suspect if she could swap the money for a, 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 a better reputation, a more restored reputation and the chance to return, I think she would. Um, but I don't think she has that choice. As a political scientist, do you think that perhaps they should look at that uh, PDCA again and the eligibility of it, maybe changing rules going forward? If Liz Truss can be in power for 45 days, who's to say someone couldn't be in power for less time in the future? (laughs) Yeah, I I, I agree. And actually, I, I mean, I think you're right that it would be, this will definitely prompt a rethink of the rules. And I think that they could afford to make them less generous. And I think what it would make more sense is actually to pay the prime minister somewhat more while in office, uh, rather than payment so much um, once they've finished, because actually by the standards of politicians in other countries um, and relative to cabinet colleagues um, and certainly relative to other, you know, kind of professional occupations, our politicians and our prime ministers are not especially well paid and people do talk about how you maybe if we paid them a bit more, we would get more talented people wanting to go for it. I'm a bit sceptical about how automatic that would be. But, yeah, I, I think it, it would be time to change the rules. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that they show up to the gig for the power and prestige and not, not how much they're getting paid. Exactly. But yeah. I'm curious what you think about the effect overall of Liz Truss's resignation on the Conservative Party's reputation because it seems hard to believe that after the failure of brexit the quick demise of nhs national health services uh boris's ousting the humiliating rise and fall of trust that anybody is going to vote conservative again so do you think maybe labor can expect more support next general election as a result of all of this yeah, I think Labour are overwhelmingly likely to win the next general election. And I think the Conservatives will be reduced to um, one of the their smallest representations ever. I don't think they will go, you know, the comparison point we always use in the UK is, was it Kim Campbell, um, Conservatives who were reduced <laughs> sure, to yes. three seats in the Canadian Parliament? Yes. I don't think that there are enough areas in Britain that will always vote Conservative overall that they won't suffer a fate quite like that. But I think they, they could well be, by British standards, absolutely massacred. And that's exactly because their reputation is, is in tatters at the moment. They have what they've tended to have the Conservatives as a reputation for economic competence, even if they were not thought of as necessarily the most caring or compassionate lot. But their economic reputation has obviously been trashed. 
And they've been in government now for 12 years, which is never usually good news for a party's reputation because you know, things happen and, and things go wrong. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they have a, a perfect storm. What seems to be happening is that there's enough people with good sense in the party to realise that restoring Boris Johnson about 10 minutes before he's about to be found guilty of misleading Parliament would be the final nail in their coffin. And instead, appointing Sunak would be at least some way of, of staunching the, the flow of blood from the party. But they're, they're in all sorts of trouble. Well, it's been very interesting to follow from over here, and there's no Schadenfreude involved. It's just we—I mean—we have our problems as well in Canada, but it has been uh, exceptional and astonishing over there. I would say, Robert Johns, thank you so much for being with us today. No problem. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.